Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events, Vault Hill, and Arabian Business. Now, men's mental health seems to be a bit of an issue that's talked about, but is it really dealt with? What about our traumas that we've experienced? What about traumas that we experience today in the relationships we're in, struggling to cope with the environment? We know that there are huge statistics around men committing suicide between the age of 45 and 50 because they just have despair. They've ended up in a life that they didn't want. They didn't get the results they wanted and the outcome they wanted, thus being left hopeless and literally thinking nothing more than maybe committing suicide. Today's guest is Elise Michaels. I started following her about two years ago, but in the last kind of nine months, I've really paid attention to what she had to say, and a lot of her content really resonated with me. So if you're a man and you've struggled, or you're a wife and your man struggles, then this episode really is for you. Cue the music. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated V-Land. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity. They can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos, or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Elise, thanks for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate your time. This is one of the few episodes that I do online because of my desire to be face-to-face with people. And boy, oh boy, do I wish we were face-to-face today dealing with the subject that you're a specialist in. But thank you so much for coming to join us. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate you doing it online, even though it's not your normal. Right. You you came across my social media feed probably six months ago. And I started to consume your content because it, I felt like you were talking to me. And that's what really resonated. As you looked into the camera, I'm like, she's, and, and I didn't even think at first. And I was like, what does she know about? It was almost like, why is she talking to me? And it, I connected, I connected with what you were saying. I connected with the points you were making and it moved me. And there's a few uh, pieces of your content that have brought me to tears over time. And so When it moved me, I knew that it must move other people too. But if we can go to the beginning, you're a men's mental health coach. We don't need to go into lots of the bit behind, but but why do you do this work? I do it because I saw that there was not a lot of support for men when it came to mental health when I first started my business. And... You know, in, in internal reason, I, I wished that my parents had more tools so that I could have avoided many painful lessons in my life. So I'm very inspired to help adults so that they can help change the future for the next generation of children. 
was it was it what you experienced as a child that uh, enabled your career to move in this direction or were there other factors that played a part? It was absolutely my experience as a child that made me move in this direction, but what I experienced as a child did not make me want to be a coach or anything like that. It was simply because I went through a very dysfunctional family, very painful events, that I wanted to heal all of that stuff for myself. And once I figured out there was a formula and a logical plan and a format to do it, I said, I have to share this with everyone else. Why do you think the vast majority of men, even today, still have this stiff upper lip and keep it in and nobody needs to know about my problems, I shouldn't talk about it type of attitude? Why, why, aren't, why aren't more people embracing this? I think more people are definitely starting to shift, but because it's such an ingrained habit and we're used to the societal expectations of men not showing emotions, that people are super uncomfortable with themselves when they start to share. They feel ashamed. They feel weak. They feel weird. And then for women, we've also been trained that men are weak if they cry or show emotion. We feel like they're not leaders. So we're met with men who feel ashamed to share and women who don't want men to share, even though there is this shift. So as more people become conscious and accepted and make it okay, there's still a lot of people who say they want it, but deny it when it shows up. I think that I'll take myself from my own experience. I think that for, for many years, I was one of those people. It was like, you don't need to, you don't need to know or understand if people say to you how you're doing it but yeah i'm fine and you know you try and move away from the uncomfortable question or it's like when you in a networking situation you sometimes find people hi how are you no tired house business and everyone says yeah really good now they could be just about to go bankrupt but they're not going to tell you that the first time and then they shift the conversation to well the kids or, or to you know did you play golf at the weekend or something to get away from focusing on that particular answer to that question and I kind of feel that 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 was me it was just like I'm gonna shuffle away from this and just not face it up but one when I then experienced um depression uh and clinically was prescribed the clinical depression that was the first time I realized that I actually could open up and people would listen and so it took a big event for me to be able to be willing to be vulnerable. Is that common? Absolutely. <laughs> when men come to me for coaching, they are on a spiritual, mental, emotional deathbed where they just cannot resist change any longer, where they need to do something different because holding it all inside anymore denying that they have feelings, saying that they can get through anything by themselves is just not working. And it's really unfortunate that we have driven men to this point where they feel like they really have no other options and they can only ask for help when they're about to jump off the ledge. Um, we don't encourage women to do the same thing. We, women have so much support. They go to their friends, they talk to their mom, they, you know, they gossip with strangers on the bus. Like men don't do that. They don't have the brotherhood and the partnership that women just naturally do. And so often they 
they feel alone and isolated and just like you they they need something to push them and it's usually depression or suicidal ideation or divorce talk to me about some of the examples that you've experienced divorce that happens to me you know eight 20 years ago and it it felt like somebody died and it, it didn't feel like you know we'd broken up it literally felt there was a death and after that experience of divorce and bear in mind i came from a broken home as well so my parents were divorced when i was seven years old i promised myself i would never get divorced if i and then five years into a marriage i then get divorced with two children and so i put my kids in exactly the same position that my parents put me and that was like everything's been done wrong and i never ever ever gonna put myself in that position again so the resistance to ever getting married again the resistance to never having kids again that kind of stuff was was really really strong because of just how much was built up inside of me how much was this like i can't let this happen never ever no more like the line in the sand has been crossed never again can it be done is that common I think absolutely. You know, when we experience dysfunctional childhoods or something that really hurts us, really wounds us, we often are like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be that person. But we resist actually doing the work that makes us be able to avoid that situation because we don't realize the only reason that things repeat is because we are absorbing the patterns from our parents or the survival mechanisms to survive in that environment. So it's really unfortunate that the promises we make to ourselves often keep us trapped in cycles that cause us to have the outcome we do not want. I think about the kind of whole idea of opening up to kind of explore that and how we, how we, how we process that, but also how we sit with somebody that can, can really kind of strap that from us and bring it out from us so that we can make it very real is is it tough to get guys to open up and for you to extract the information that you need to be able to really help somebody well like i said when somebody comes to me they are <laughs> they're broken they're broken open spiritually mentally they have come to me because they know they need to change so for me it is very easy to get that information. And I think it's because like you saw, you saw me on social media, you felt like it was speaking to you. There's a level of trust that is created when someone feels heard and seen and validated. And I think that's what we're missing a lot from society is people don't really listen. They take in what you're saying and try to solve it for you because they feel uncomfortable with your pain. But seeing someone's pain and validating it does so much more for them than trying to solve it for them. That's quite interesting. I think about men and women. So when women have, when in a relationship, when a woman has a problem, she expresses the problem to the to the husband or the partner, and the husband wants to try and fix the problem. It's like if she's got a problem, I'm going to try and fix it. So that's naturally what I try and do. And sometimes the woman doesn't want to be fixed; she just wants to be heard. So. That sometimes the guy gets that wrong, but he's, it's natural that he just wants to fix it. Do you think that when guys talk to each other, that by sharing and talking to each other, because the other one just wants to try and fix it and come up with a solution, that maybe that message doesn't get delivered in the way that it 
that it should? Well, absolutely. And usually men, if they start talking, usually they don't even get deep enough to fully express their own perspective on what they're going through. Or they usually need a lot of alcohol and it comes out in a different way. Um, so there are certain bonds between men where you can get deep and vulnerable. And I think that they understand and listen to each other. But most of the time, it's very surface level, such as, you know, hey, how's it going with the wife? Oh, not so good. Oh, what's going on? Uh, we're just fighting a lot. She feels like I don't listen to her. Oh, that sucks, man. Yeah, but anyway, how's the game going, right? Like you say it in one sentence, nothing is really covered. Nothing is really, you know, like you said, it's uncomfortable and we don't know how to fix it. Like for men, like you said, they're naturally driven to problem solve. So if they can't solve their own problem, they don't want to give it to anybody else to solve because they feel ashamed. They feel weak. They feel like I'm failing at this. Why would I want to tell anybody about it? So they keep it inside. Oh, that's so true. So true when you think about it. Do you think also that sometimes people, maybe when they have depression, don't acknowledge they've got depression. They just think they're a bit down in the dumps and a bit fed up. And because of that, it's not a big enough problem to, to, to take any time to explore with anything. So a lot of people are experiencing high-functioning depression where they are doing everything that they usually do. They're going to the gym, they're going to work, they're getting things done but they're scatterbrained. They're drinking tons of caffeine. They're not getting a lot of sleep. They're just not feeling connected or present. They are on autopilot. They don't realize that they're depressed because that's just their normal. And some people go through this for years and years. And it's not like anything is wrong because they're so used to it. It's just they never really truly feel joy. They never truly feel connected. And they just feel like fatigued. But it's it's not something that they ever bring to attention because Everybody feels like this. I think about that. It's like work's going okay and then home life is just okay um, or you're arguing with your partner or the kids are being a pain in the ass and you know, you're, just, you're just fed up with everything because together everything is, is the whole day. But we just got to get through it because we still need the money to come in. We still need to pay the mortgage. We still need to make sure that the, there's food on the table, etc. And so you, you keep muddling through. And when 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 you think there's no way out, sometimes the only way is to go through, isn't it? Yes. I try. I try to think about as I'm talking to you. I think about myself. I think about people that I know. Think of that that, that, that that have suffered that are suffering. Um, I also think about you know, people that I know that have got divorced. And sometimes, you know, when we see this divorce rate as high as it is, I think a lot of the time divorce happens because it's almost like people give up too quickly, but because they don't get the right amount of support within their relationship, the right amount of counselling to work through the challenges that they have. That's the easy solution is just to walk away and you know move on. Do you notice that? You know, I think a lot of people say that, but from my experience with my clients, I actually see quite the opposite. I see people trying for a very long time. What I see is the ulti ultimate thing for divorce is one spouse is trying and the other is not. One spouse has gone to therapy. They've wanted couples therapy. They read self-help books and the other person just continuously blames them or has a an, an addiction issue. And 
it's two dysfunctional people who are perfect matches for each other, but are not healthy. And one resists the, the urge to get healthy, and they resist that because it threatens their only way they know how to survive. Because as you experienced with the divorce, it feels like a death. Whenever you go through a growth journey, relearning literally how to do things, reprogramming certain behaviors in your brain, you lose who you think you are. And a lot of people are not brave enough to do that. So I see a lot of clients um, in marriages that they shouldn't have been or that have changed and they don't actually want to give up. And it's harder for men because they don't want to lose all their money and they don't want to lose custody of the kids. But they're so unhappy and they've tried for so long. I mean, that's what I see in my in my experience. Shannon, I think about my first marriage. I got married after a year with somebody and I was 26 years old. And I think no man at 26 years old is, is suitably experienced in life enough to be burying somebody at that age. I look back on that and think I look at... Um, all of the mistakes I made, and I think that when you when you when you get into a relationship with somebody, you've got to spend enough time to get to know who they really are, you know, because we have the the sunshine and rainbows and the sparkles in the first year or so, and then you got to get to know who they really are. But then, is it because people change within the relationship, or do you think it's just because people tire of each other? I think it's because people change. And they, like you said, a lot of marriages happen at a very young age or at a time when we haven't experienced enough growth to understand ourselves. And so we find someone who either replicates our scenarios in childhood that are maybe dysfunctional and are a perfect match, right? How I pleased my parents is how I please this person and that feels comfortable to me. So I will continue to go down this path or, um, you know, we use it to fill a void. Like I was never loved enough subconsciously, right? This isn't a conscious thought that you're thinking, but subconsciously, maybe I don't feel so good about myself. And once this person came in, they really loved me. And so I'm going to do this marriage, but something is missing. But then society's like, this person is so great. You should be grateful. Most people don't find their person. Like you live a good life. And we're kind of bullied into staying in situations we don't like. We're bullied into getting married too early. We're, we're bullied into, you know, like, just living lives that are not authentic and we're bullied to keep that promise even if we change. Like you said, you made a promise to yourself, I will never ever get divorced. And that kind of eliminates, I mean, it's a really good thought process. Like I want to keep my word and I want to honor a commitment that I made. However, it also dishonors your authentic self and the ability to honor if something is no longer working, if something is no longer healthy. And we kind of trap ourselves in this place of limbo. I learned about gratitude a while ago. And I always used to kind of laugh at people. Say, no, you need to have gratitude. If you have gratitude, then you know, things will be better. Um, and it really didn't resonate with me until I started to work with some uh, young girls from Bangladesh who were from very poor environments that were forced into marriage at the age of 12 years old with people that were 30 years old and older. But after spending time with them and now working with them, seeing them very regularly, it's almost like, it's like an injection when I'm with them that goes in and it's a big 
syringe, like a massive syringe of gratitude that goes in and I walk away from them after seeing them on maybe a Saturday afternoon. And I am amazing for the whole week on the back of that. It's like, I feel so grateful because my worst day ever is still better than their best day ever. And so it reminds me how lucky I am. But I think that kind of, for men, is I know for sure in any community I've been in, if I talk about gratitude with men, it's like, you know, females talk about it, but guys don't talk about gratitude. Do you think they don't practice gratitude or do you think they don't understand it or do you think it's, uh, you know, too much feminine energy? I don't think gratitude is necessarily a feminine energy, but I think that men have been taught to suppress their emotions for so long, they really don't understand how to feel. They, they only understand how to feel angry or potentially happy or horny, right? Because those are the only okay feelings for men to have. And so when you talk about things like gratitude, it's like, yeah, they feel grateful, but what does that feel like viscerally? How do you feel it in your body? Many men don't know what that's like. Logically, men understand sad, happy, joy, gratitude. But they look at you funny when you say it because they've never felt it. They've never felt the change that true gratitude or true joy or true love can really bring to a person. And that's why they scoff at a lot of these things and call them feminine or that's for women because women feel their emotions viscerally because they were allowed to. Children, boy or girl, always feel all their emotions. It's not genetic, what we feel or don't feel, but men have been trained, don't feel that. You talked about horny, you said horny. And I think that I was, I was literally just with uh, somebody the other day who hasn't slept with their partner for four years. And I'm sure you hear this a lot, but I don't, so I don't ask those questions, but they haven't slept with them for four years. And their partner travels half of the month as well. And they talk about the relationship being close and respectful and kind and uh, affectionate. Um, but yeah, that kind of, that fizzled out. And I find that most bizarre because although for me, the most intimate thing I can do with my partner is not necessarily what she thinks, but what I think, um, walking and holding hands, I find really intimate. And so if you're just holding hands, it's, it's, we hold hands, nobody else holds hands. It's like, we only hold each other's hands. So that for me is, is very intimate and loving, but the thought of being in a relationship and not having sex for, oh, I'm not a sex pest, but, but I don't know, and a month or two, and that, that would be really alien to me. And so when I hear people saying they haven't had sex for four years and they don't do anything about it, they just kind of like mosey on down a path and just accept it for what it is i think you become brother and sister or best friends or something rather than you know lovers yeah a lot of relationships turn into roommate situations where the intimacy dies they stop sleeping together they then go into different rooms and just kind of live like that and no man i've ever spoken to has been happy about that situation um but nothing is being done about it. And I think people just kind of give up at a certain point and, and settle. Settle in a way that is not like necessarily like your partner's horrible and now you have to live with this. It's like you stop trying 
and you just say nothing is going to change and then you stop trying to change anything and then you lose kind of the light within yourself because once you feel out of control out of power in your life you know that's when that's when the darkness starts to set in you feel like this is just how it is and it no, it's never going to get better i believe that this no sex problem for a long period of time is 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 bigger and wider than maybe most people give it credit for so if i if i came to you and that was one of my issues I said look i've not been having sex with my wife for a long time i love her with all my heart i love my kids you know she's she's a wonderful woman she takes care of us she you know she makes great food she's you know she has a career as well and i'm really proud of her for what she does and she's done a great job with the children but we just don't have sex how how would you teach me or what process would we go through to try and get that side of the relationship back on track well i mean first we would analyze what you have done about it so far right have you talked to your partner about it in what way have you spoken with your partner about it have you done couples therapy you know what is the underlying issue like was there a big event that made it stop was there a death in the family did someone lose their job right there's a lot of different factors that can um, make this type of situation happen and often people withdraw physical intimacy when the emotional intimacy is gone. And that's something a lot of men don't understand or realize because they haven't been allowed to express emotional intimacy, right? So for them, they are trying to capture all of their intimacy and love and feelings and emotion and joy in a sexual act. And for women, we separate, right? And if we're not feeling emotionally bonded and connected, we, ne we don't necessarily want to open up physically. So it's confusing to both parties if you don't understand where each other is coming from. And usually this type of scenario happens when the partners are not in good communication. Like just because you are talking to your partner doesn't mean you're actually communicating with your partner, understanding them, seeing them, you know, acknowledging what's going on. And so if something is prolonged for a period of time where you're not being intimate for years, there are unresolved issues that once resolved might open up that doorway again. In your experience, is it relationship issues or career? Uh, they, they say that the, the highest rate of suicide for men is between the age of 45 and 50, which leads me to believe that, you know, if you take the stereotypical example, the guy leaves, whether it's college or an apprenticeship of some sort, goes into the workplace, has great ambitions about his career, has dreams about what he wants to achieve, and they can be grandiose or they can be mediocre. It doesn't matter. It's what anybody actually wants. But then they get to this age of 45 and they look back and it's like, fuck, that, that, that wasn't why I was planning. And look at where I am. And I still don't have enough money to retire. And I still haven't paid the mortgage off. And I still didn't get the promotion. I'm still just you know, an employee. And it can be, it can be really sad to get to that place and feel that you've basically failed and then you feel shame is is that very very common in what you experience is that one of the you know the, the pillars almost of the problem absolutely those two i think are the biggest factors and when it comes and i'm not an, an expert on this so like don't quote me on this as like a medical advice or anything when it comes to like suicidal ideation the combination of a failed relationship and failed finances are what drives men to the edge because they do not feel like men anymore. They don't feel like they have any hope. They don't feel like anything is ever going to get better for them. And so, yeah, I mean, most men that come to me 
their finances and careers are great because like you said, they've gone down the path. They've done everything that a man is prescribed to do, but their relationship has suffered immensely either because they focus so much on career and work because they wanted to support the family and now they've ignored the emotional, physical, mental side of the relationship or um, they haven't gotten in one altogether, right? Or it's at the edge of, edge of divorce. So um, that's usually what I see in, in, in my clients and in the people I talk to. 2012, I was fired from a company that I'd helped to build for 16 years and was one of the founders. I took a year of gardening leave, which I was so essentially I was paid not to work, which I thought when I accepted it was a really smart idea. I just had an operation on my back, so I needed to recover. I hadn't seen lots of my friends and family for a long time, so I thought I could take some time to go and visit them. And I did all of that over the course of about six weeks. And then I now still had 10 and a half months before I could do anything. And so slowly I went down and down, down to the point where I wasn't sleeping. There was three nights I didn't sleep at all. I went to the gym twice a day to try and tie myself out to sleep. I couldn't sleep. And I decided that, you know what? What's the point? You know, there's money for the kids. Their stepfather's a nice enough guy. They've got their mom. They don't need I'm of no value anyway. What will the world won't even know? Won't even know if I'm gone. It won't even acknowledge it. Won't recognize it. And so what's the point of continuing? And I wasn't emotional. I wasn't, you know, crying. I, it, I was very clear. It was just something, you know, it's end, end of that, I just die. You know, if I just die, that's the easiest thing to do. And so what I did is I, I, I studied what the options were and I made my decision on what option I was going to take. And, planned out what I was going to do uh, and was very calm about it. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't any innovation. And up until the point that, that it was, it was identified by my dad, believe it or not. And once he identified it, he did something to get in the way and stop that happening. But up until that point, I was very calm and very clear about what I wanted to do. But I just felt worthless. And I felt I'd, I'd, I'd almost gone from hero to zero and then then I became invisible and that 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 really impacted me to to the point that it took me probably to 2019 so seven years to fully recover I was prescribed antidepressants I was in a clinic for a week I uh, had various uh, therapy counseling people to help but I just felt every time I was talking to someone I was just telling everyone my problems and I wasn't I wasn't able to solve them I was just asked more questions really so it was almost like talk yourself to exhaustion rather than can you just is there something to fix this you know what's the fix I just want the fix so that is it is it screws is it is it bolts is it tablets is it you know what's the fix is it you know is it what is it give me the fix um and the only thing that ever was, here's your fix, was antidepressant, which I refused to take. I hope that nobody goes through at all what I went through, ever, because it was a horrific experience. But I'm pretty sure I'm not on my own. Exactly. I was, yeah, just as you said that, I, I hope nobody goes through this. Um, so many people are experiencing what you experienced. And I'm so sorry you had that experience. And 
you are so valid in your statement of, I was just talking about my problems and I just wanted a solution. So often when we are healing, there's a lot of rhetoric out there about, you know, talk about your problems. And I think that's also why a lot of men avoid therapy and avoid talking about it because they want solutions. And that's also why I'm the type of coach that I am because when I went to therapy, that I had a similar experience and I love my therapist. She's still my therapist today. But after about a year and a half, I felt like I'm still in the same cycles. And although it's good to like go to therapy, like why am I not better, quote unquote? And so that's when I dove into the neuroscience and the trauma therapy and relationship science and all of these things to to figure out actual methods and understand the body physiology and that you really can take control. And the second that you understand on a very logical scientific level that you can control how you feel, the power switch turns on and, and you just feel a different way. And I'm not sure if that was your experience once you started to feel better in 2019. Maybe you had a mission again. Maybe you had something that you were looking forward to. But it's almost like the second that we step out of the quote unquote depression bubble and put our focus on the future, put our focus on the solution, put our focus on working towards something, the depression and the sadness and the feeling of worthlessness just naturally tends to die away. Mission, purpose, uh, the two most underrated words on this planet and so critical to, to my well-being having something to aim for and knowing that it's achievable and having, having something to hold on to is as much as it's, because yeah, mission and purpose is said quite freely, isn't it? Yeah, we need a mission, we need purpose, and you know, these goals, and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, we need all these things. Yeah, boy, if you've got them, then guess what? Your life's going to be amazing. And it's just, but they're massive. They're massive because mission and it can be, in my own experience, it can be career mission. It can be, you know, purpose-led mission based around something I care about. It doesn't always have to be work. But for most of us, okay, work's important. And so, you know, because we have to put food on the table. And that that mission needs to be an outcome. And if you're in a salaried job, it could be the promotion. Um, if you're in a salaried job, it could be a project you're working on and getting it done. It, and now a lot of the time people think about long-term goals. I've seen this a lot in a lot of the work that I do. And I don't believe anybody should have long-term goals. I believe everybody should have short-term goals because I believe if you can see the finish line, it makes it way more realistic. And so I, I urge people to think just three months ahead. Think about what can be achieved in three months' time. Put, give ourselves a goal, okay? Work out what the actions are we need to take every day to achieve it and double down on those actions because if you do, you'll keep busy every day and because you're busy, when you're busy, your mind doesn't take you to those dark places as easy. Um, as long as it's stuff that you want to do rather than what you don't want to do. Um, and I see so many men that are out there that I'm like, what is your mission? Okay. what uh, A part of a men's networking group called METAL, which stands for Media, Entertainment, Technology, Arts and Leaders. And it's based in LA. And it's a group of men, okay, run by a guy called Ken Rakowski. And... It's an awesome group of people. The first time I met, I met Ken, I walked into somebody's house and he was here in Dubai. He's from LA. And he's like, hi, Spence, nice to meet you. What makes you cool? And I was like, well, I'm English and he's American. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, 
excuse me, what makes me cool? Um, uh, uh, I, uh, have a podcast. It's the English, biggest English speaking podcast. So what? Everyone's got a podcast. I mean, I've got two amazing daughters at university. So what? Everyone's got kids. And I was like, huh? And then my friend went, Spencer, you're making a documentary on human trafficking, for goodness sake. And he went, wow. He said, that makes you cool. And when he said it to me, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I now feel cool. But I didn't realize that, that I did before. Because it was, I wasn't focused on it in the same way. If you got every man to line up that was feeling bad about themselves and you and you help them identify a goal, something to work towards, do you think that would solve a big chunk of their problems? I think it would definitely help. I think it would definitely help um, because people, in order to move forward, need something to look forward to. And a lot of men who feel worthless um, don't have anything to look forward to, like your experience. And so many people with depression have that experience of, I just have nothing to look forward to. Okay, so I had the depression in 2016. I'd started the company and started to build another company, but I but I, I wasn't motivated by it. And so Daniel, my business partner, I said to her one day, do you want to run the business? And she's like, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, do you want to take it over? Do you want to run everything? And she's like, give me back your car park pass. I was like, where do you need my car park pass? You have a car park. She's like, yeah, but I don't need to come to the office because if you want me to be the boss here, you need to allow me to be the boss. So you're going to need me need, need to step away and not come to the office. And I'm like, yeah, go, Danielle. That's awesome. Okay, fair enough. Little little piece of me died inside in that moment. But, okay, I believed it was the, the best thing to do. That was one of the, in not that the company, the company's done much better with her running it than me. me but for me, that caused me further problems because I've now got businesses that pay me money. Okay. I get income from these businesses, so I don't have to worry about any of them, but I don't have a job. So it's almost like I've retired myself. And that, that was dark again. I went through another phase of things becoming really dark again. It's like, and it just came back again to mission and purpose. It was like, what do I do now? I know I've, I've, I've just created utopia for myself financially. I don't have to do anything. Money gets paid to me every month. You know, that's, that's what people's dream is to get to that point. You know, I've got there. But now no mission, no purpose. What do you do? And so that took me down to that dark, dark, dark place again. It's like, you feel very lonely. And my wife is, my wife is starting to say, what are you doing here every day? Why, why, why are you at home? Go and do something. You're, you're annoying me. And so I started to get, you know, rather than get support from my wife, she was like, what are you doing? And the reason I tell you this kind of stuff, Elise, is that no, I, I want other people to to maybe share and think about how much, some of this might resonate with them as well. I don't think men's mental health only means suicide, um, darkest of days ever, on the edge, the world's you know over. A lot of men's mental health issues can be related to things like loneliness. You know, and and I'd say loneliness is a killer, but loneliness may not be a killer. But you know, it's it's not nice, is it?
Well, yeah, no, it almost is. I mean, loneliness is a killer. Uh, solitary confinement is the worst punishment that we give to people in the U.S. when they are in prison, right? So um, when people feel so alone, that is when they have suicidal ideation. But you're exactly right. Like mental health is just another aspect of your health, like physical health is, like spiritual health is, you know? How healthy do you feel? It's like if you're physically okay, but you're not working out and you're not eating right and whatever, like just because you're okay doesn't mean you're like the best you could be. So why wouldn't you work on it, right? Why wouldn't you strive to do more, to be more, to be as healthy as you could be? And it's the same with mental health. Does, nothing has to be wrong with you for you to want to improve it, for you to want to learn things about yourself, to experience self-reflection and maybe what deeper intimacy looks like for you. Like everything could be going good for you in your life. But if you've never done any self-reflective work, why not? Why not try to strengthen that muscle and dig deeper into being who you are, dig deeper into the mission that you might have into the work that you do? It can be as much of an enlightening experience as it is to get yourself out of a hole. And honestly, I think that's what we should look at, right? Like we need to be solution focused as opposed to just always problem focused. Nothing has to be wrong with you in order for you to want to be the best. Do you have a therapist? Yeah. And do you have a therapist? Yeah, you said earlier you had a therapist that you work with. Your, the therapist that you work with, what do you work on with your therapist? What kind of stuff? I don't want to go into details. Obviously, that's your important. Mm -hmm. fact, but what kind of stuff that do you typically talk about generically? I mean, it's evolved. She's been my therapist for like five or seven years. Um, so in the beginning, it was more like crisis therapy where I was on the edge. I just got out of a bad breakup. So we were talking about relationship things. And, um, you know, then it then six months later transitioned into childhood stuff because I told her stuff that I um, had never told anyone that I thought didn't matter in my life. But actually, I found out, oh, that really wasn't uh, healthy in childhood. <laughs> it wasn't a normal thing. Um, and as I have grown into my own coach and studied all of these modalities I'm able to look at it from such a different perspective and now it's almost like um, I consult with her about these issues and I'm able to observe it from such a like almost like a an equal counterpoint um, person standpoint where like therapists are very non-directive they don't give you action items they don't tell you what's going on in the body they don't tell you anything about the neuroscience and so now that I know all of these things, I kind of utilize her in a way that um, is very beneficial to me, improving my knowledge of the therapeutic world. Do we, do we know statistics around the, the rise of the work that's done towards mental, men's mental health over the last decade, let's say, we say it's becoming more more frequent and common, but do we know any statistics around the adoption of, of the seriousness of the subject and the and the work that's being done or the actions being taken? Um, I don't have access to any statistics at this moment. I have access to statistics about the suicide rates, and you know it's very interesting because I think, like what you said before, we focus a lot on the negative statistics as opposed to the positive statistics, like the rise in men's mental health. I'm not sure if there are even statistics on that yet, especially because I think within like the last three years since I started, it's, it's seen a huge surge, right? And before that, it was really, really 
still um, kind of underground. And now within the last decade, I think we've seen a surge in mental health for everyone and every kind of gender and LGBTQ and, and all these things are just kind of exploding as we, you know, come into new identities and, and everything like that. So I would be curious to see that as well. I'd love to see a graph showing the, the difference that's been made because I think that graph, if it has improved consistently, I think that graph is going to um, maybe motivate men to think a little bit more and maybe not not sit there and bite the lip and keep the stiff upper lip and you know shuffle it underneath the notepad and, and just say Do you know what this is this is happening more people are doing it this is something maybe i should try too because maybe we can save some more people from that as well we see it talked about in the workplace one of my companies is a corporate wellness business and so in in the workplace we see that you know people want to do workshops on understanding this kind of stuff way more than they ever used to you know five years ago there was nobody that would have asked for a men's mental health workshop well here a, a mental health workshop that had a men's one but we're seeing far more now that they want to try and educate men uh, as best they can to understand this what's interesting though is when you put a group of men in a room and you talk about it and they're a group and they work together already and there's different levels of seniority in the room that you know oh, so arms get folded and the kind of like shuffle in the seat feeling a bit uncomfortable because they're in that room and they don't necessarily want to open up but the least you can do is share the information at least they can go and think about that right yeah and in that environment it is actually very hard because when you mix work and emotion things you know, lines are blurred, right? And in today's society, we're like, oh, you should be able to share things with your boss or with, you know, your coworkers. I personally don't necessarily agree with this because just like I'm not personally sharing my own pains with my clients because then the lines are blurred and there's a different level of trust that seniority needs to have with their team. Like parents shouldn't share all of their emotions with their children. We shouldn't blur all the lines. There's an appropriate amount versus a not appropriate amount. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't be open and vulnerable about some things or have an open, you know, palette, but everybody needs someone that they can go to. And it just, you know, you have to choose wisely that specific person. I mean, that's just my personal perspective on that. If, um, if I was suffering and I was struggling and I came to you, and I reached out, what would you be able to offer me? Tell, tell me how I can engage with your work and rather than just assuming what you do online, how do I get, how do I get some face time, man? How do I get some time with you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, for anybody who wants FaceTime with me, I have, you know, something called a clarity call, which is a 75 minute call where, you know, you explain to me what's been going on, what you want to work through. I ask you specific questions to see where this behavior might have started so we get to the root cause of it and then I will teach you how the physiology of the body works combined with the mind so that you can understand your triggers and understand how to reprogram the behavior and habit into something that benefits you as opposed to something that is just subconsciously playing in the background that you're unaware of. Okay, so that's one way. And so seven to five minutes, I'll just get that one-to-one -one chance to spend that time with you and we come out with some form of um, 
almost strategy that I can deploy myself after that call, yeah? Right. There's an action plan that I give you. I give everyone a follow-up um, email with main talking points, session summary, action items, extra materials that might help you dive deeper into the knowledge. I talk a lot about neuroscience and the body, so things to expand your knowledge. Um, and beyond that call, if someone wanted to continue coaching, if they if we found we were a good fit, then I have a one-on-one -on -one program that is um, a 13-week program. And what, what does that include? Uh, it's 13 sessions via Zoom, uh, once every week, same day, same time. Unlimited WhatsApp support in between sessions so that if you have an idea come up, if you want to talk about something and you need extra materials, we keep the conversation going so you don't have to wait until the next session. Um, they get the follow-up emails, like I just said, the recorded sessions, and uh, it's only 13 weeks. So it's very fast, it's very compact, and at the end of each session, you have an action item that is going to make it the least amount of stress in your life for the most amount of impact. So I've kind of created this system over the last three years with men that really worked for them so that they get results fast and you're not sitting in front of me for like 10 years at a time. <laughs> results fast. Okay. A couple of questions I want to ask you. Um, why men? How did that happen? Was that conscious, subconscious? Did it just fall that way or did you start off going, it's going to be all about men? No, it totally just happened. Um, I started my business on LinkedIn by posting videos that were inspirational and I intended to be a woman's spiritual coach and only men reached out to me when I posted these videos. And I was like, this is very weird. I don't know how to help men. Uh, they're so much older than me and more successful than me. But like, let's try it. I mean, I, I did this formula. I know how to work with pain. So let me see if I can help. And once I did, that's when I realized that men don't have a lot of support when it comes to mental health. And I said, why don't I just be that person? Women have a lot of help. I'm going to be the one for men. And we're very glad that you decided that for sure. Okay. Um, let's talk about a couple of things here. Subconscious trauma. Uh, let me describe subconscious as I understand it. Okay. So we have... A conscious brain, the subconscious brain, our subconscious brain to me is almost like a risk management device. It's the, it's the part of the brain that wants you to stay on the sofa, packet of Cheetos, remote control on the chest, don't take any risks, stay very still and chill out in front of the TV. Um, the conscious brain is the one that says, no, get up, you lazy ass, let's go work out and get fit. And so the conscious mind has to really overpower the subconscious mind um, uh, to be able to get stuff done. But the subconscious brain just doesn't want us to do anything that might cause any harm to us in terms of physically any harm to us in this example. Do you see it similarly or can you describe it differently? Yeah, I mean, the way that you have an understanding of it is exactly right. Subconscious literally means below consciousness. So it's geared to help us survive physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever. When you're a baby, you have no idea how the world works, right? You're born. Humans are useless. We rely on our caregivers to teach us how to receive love, gain success, gain validation, attention. So whatever your caregiver's environment was for you, whatever behaviors you had to create and do in order to get love from them, your brain took that in as, this is how I do this. And once it adopted that and it worked for you, it said, okay, this is the way. And you never think about it ever again until your adulthood when you run into roadblocks and relationships aren't working out or you feel unmotivated all the time or you fail at certain things 
that's the only time that you ever take a look at the behaviors that you have and try to change them or else, yeah, your subconscious just runs the show because your brain doesn't have time to think about how do I rewire things that I've been doing for 10 years? It doesn't think like that. Makes a lot of sense. The subconscious trauma that we experience, is that, is that easy to manage? Well, I mean, it really just depends on what you mean by easy to manage. From a logical perspective, there is a very easy, logical process to solve trauma, but trauma is different for everyone. And the length of time you've kept that behavior, the length, you know, the depth of the pain that you've experienced all has a, a very large impact on how, quote unquote, easy it is to, to manage and to solve. You started a podcast. It's called Thank You Pain or Thank Your Pain. Yeah, Thank Your Pain. How long have you had it going? Uh, well, the podcast has only been going for a couple of years. The, the concept has been around for like six or seven. So you've been running it for a couple of years. So I, I obviously I enjoy podcasting. It's something that I would do with all of my time if, uh, if, if I, if I was able to, do you get a lot from running a podcast? I get much more from doing my video content where you found me, um, because I, I love video. Right. So the podcast is an extra bit where I can interview people like you to get more wisdom, to get knowledge I've never had, to help out my my people. Um, but video content is my forte and I would love my own show one day. That's what I will do when, you know, I can just do, be doing my own thing. Do you think you could be the next Dr. Phil? Well, I don't know if I want to be him because he's a lot of drama. But, you know, I have said maybe I can be like Ellen or Oprah, you know, something a little fun mixed in with, uh, <laughs> you know, a little seriousness. And what's to stop you doing that? I mean, I don't think anything's. I'm going to get it eventually. Like, I've got half a million followers now. I think I can have my own show. Why not? <laughs> Would you watch it if I had one? I, I would for sure watch it without a shadow of a doubt. Well, maybe we should maybe we should start. Maybe I'll just do a GoFundMe or something. I'll just do a YouTube channel. Anything's possible. Is anything's possible if you've got the right mindset towards it. A lot of people would say that's that's overwhelming, but the fact that you're you 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 know you laugh about it, but there's a secret desire in there to let that happen. It's... Oh yeah. Well, I mean, this is something I've wanted since I was younger. Like this was my desire as a child manifesting now in a way that I had no idea that it was going to manifest this way. So for me, I'm laughing because I know for me, it's the truth. And um, I don't care what anybody else thinks because I'm living it. <laughs> and for me, it's coming true, right? I never thought, um, I always believed I could have millions and millions of followers and help people. But when you're at 17,000 followers and you're like, okay, I'm grinding every day, I'm grinding every day. And people are like, whatever. And then all of a sudden you gain 100,000 in one month. I believed that could happen to me. Nobody else, but like now it keeps growing and I'm like, I knew this could happen and I'm just going to keep doing the work until I get what I want and I don't really care what anybody else says. I love that attitude. That's amazing. <laughs> Tell me, did it come as a shock to you that that, 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 that growth of 100,000 came? Because I've been mean, obviously following your content. I've seen it grow and I'm like, go girl, go girl. As if every time I see you say thank you to the guys and whatnot. But um <laughs> I mean, it really has been quite quite a meteoric rise over recent time. Yeah, I mean, 
in October, I only had 17,000 followers. And now I'm almost at 200,000 and we're February 2nd. So that is, it's, it's an insane amount of growth. And I'm just, I'm so grateful. I have, I have the best community. It's not a bunch of robots. It's like real people who participate and they're so kind and so courteous and they really want to help themselves. And uh, I, I just feel so blessed that I am the, and, and this channel for, for that healing. And I really try not to take it for granted. Oh man, you, you absolutely shouldn't. Of course you shouldn't, but TikTok's big, Instagram's big, half a million followers. You're doing really well from that point of view. And you know what? When you think about percentages going up, a 10% increase is 50,000. 20% increase is 100,000. And so you start to start think about those those dynamics. And hey, who's to say you can't have a million by the middle of this year? Who's to say? <laughs> we're, we're open. We're getting there. I'm, hopefully by the end of this year, I'm going to say. But... Okay, so let's just talk about your business for a second on it because this is really quite interesting. A lot of people will look at that and say, right, how's she getting those followers? What is she doing? What's her strategy? What's she deploying here? Okay, is it literally you're asking your audience to share your content or is it just because for some unknown reason it resonated with enough people over a period of time for it to go ping? What was it? Yeah, so I've never asked anyone to share my content because I believe that if they want to share it, they're gonna. You know, you're not an idiot. If you like something, you share it with someone. It's never because anyone told you to share it. Um, what I found is, you know, well, people obviously have short attention spans. So I really just try to communicate my message as clearly and concisely as possible in the shortest amount of time. So I used to do like one minute long videos, a minute 30 seconds, and I really used to explain concepts and, you know, on TikTok, I was at like 4,000 followers. And then one time I just said like one sentence that was like, I don't know what man needs to hear this, but, you know, stop investing in that woman who, you know, is not invested in you. And that is the one that like set everything off. It was so short. It was so quick. And people felt it. And, you know, I just studied my audience and I, I watched and I listened. Listen being how like, are they sharing this? Are they liking this? That's listening to your audience, right? They like this type of content, so I need to focus more on this. So the shorter my messages are and the more concise, um, you know, the the faster I grow. Gee, it's amazing. You should be really proud of yourself. Honestly, really, really proud of yourself. Do you know who Dr. Julie Smith is? I do not. Okay, so you'll find her on TikTok. Have a look. Okay, it was Dr. Julie Smith's content that I consumed, and... And then I stumbled across your content and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Dr. Judy Smith with an American accent. <laughs> so yeah, she, she watch her content. If you don't know her, she, she has many, many millions of followers. And, and again, just because she's short, sharp explanations and stuff to explain how you were feeling, how to deal with it. And, and on the back of it, it's been fantastic. And, um, I tried to book an appointment with her. Okay. So I got hold of her people and I said, look, I want to book an appointment with her. They said, yeah, no problem at all. And the earliest appointment she had to give me was five months' time. Uh-huh. Because she's in such demand because of the great work that, that resonates with other every people. And so for, for sure, you're going to be in that position very soon as well. So you know, my diary's full. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> trying to manage all of that. Okay, a couple of more questions before we finish. How do you define success and happiness? I think success and happiness is the constant pursuit of your 
growth and surrender to your natural state of being? Surrender to your natural state of being. Which I see as abundant and loving and whole and full of gratitude, like you described earlier. If you constantly practice just being present, you will attract to you much more than you ever expected. I think we underestimate the importance of happiness. I think if you're happy, Joey, happiness to me is like money. Okay, I'll explain why. If you have cash flow in a business, meaning money's coming through the door, you keep breathing. The, the business keeps breathing. It doesn't matter what else is going on around. As long as money keeps coming through the door, you survive. Yeah. Happiness to me is like that. As long as you're happy, whatever's going on around you, you can handle. But whether that's an inner happiness or an outer happiness, it, as long as you're happy, as long as you sit down and get, you, know, you consider yourself lucky and you're happy, you can, you can fight most battles. Would you agree? Um, I totally agree. I think when you feel in control and like you, if you feel like you are a resilient person who can persevere and that everything is working in your favor, you can get through anything because then, like you said, when the challenges come, it's not necessarily that you're happy and, oh my God, no, I'm sad because of the bad luck has come. It's just like, oh, this is actually going to help me create more happiness because I'm going to find a solution to this problem and then I'm going to have another tool in my kit. And uh, I'm going to get that dopamine hit again. And so, like, that's kind of how I see life is I trust that I am universally taken care of and that if something hurts me or something bad happens, I, I literally have programmed myself now to think something good is really coming right now because um, it's creating space for that new thing. Elise Michaels, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. You're an absolute joy. I love following you. I love the way that you move me. And I love that my audience have got a chance to hear you share your thoughts and ideas with us. And I look forward to them all following you. What is the Instagram handle? Uh, thank you so much, Spencer. And the Instagram handle is at Elise Michaels, E-L-I-S-E-M-I-C-H-E-A-L-S, Mike Heels. Um, it's a little bit weird sounding, looking, so. <laughs> if you don't find her, trust me, you will. When this comes out, guys, for all of you that are watching this content, do me a favor, reach out, give her a follow. She's got an ambition to grow her audience. I don't know many of you this will resonate with. So please do me a favor. Just to me, nobody else. <laughs> Go give her a follow. Consume some of her content. I promise you, you will be hooked. We'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>